following is a sermon preached at Grace Church of Orange, California. Join us now as we go verse by verse through God's inspired, inerrant, infallible Word. We're in Romans chapter 11, verses 25 to 32 today, God's irrevocable promise to Israel. Now, this is one of the most misunderstood aspects of God's redemption plan, and that's the, the future of Israel. And what happens is we either underplay it or we overplay it, Israel's role, and we misunderstand what God's doing, and we run the risk of misinterpreting his kingdom program. And, and what happens is if we mishandle scripture on this or we listen to the wrong teacher, we can go off the rails. And so this is a very important thing, and this is not a message that's a tutorial on Israel. This is for Gentile believers, Jews and Gentiles alike, to be humble before God and understand what God is doing and what he says he will do. Our approach to scripture has to be very careful, and we have to beware misinterpreting God's gracious dealings. The word of God is our compass, and we we practice what is called a literal, grammatical, historical hermeneutic, where we basically study what the actual words mean in context, not to be know-it-alls, not to know all these facts, but to understand what God intends as he gives us his word. And by the way, what we see today is clear, because God's word is clear, and he isn't trying to confuse you. God isn't trying to confuse you. He he illumines the scriptures for believers. He, he gives us understanding so that we can glorify him and serve his purposes. And so today we're, we have gathered by God's grace, literally by the grace of God are we here, to open up our Bibles to really gratefully receive what he has for us in verses 25 to 32 of Romans chapter 11. And we're not just going to see God's plan for Israel here. We're not just going to see the future plan What we're going to see is as we look at God's irrevocable promise, we're going to see his goodness in delivering people for his glory, in in taking away their sins, in making a covenant with people, and promising to save. And and really what it should cause us to do is is rejoice and, and really revel in the beauty of God's plan, the beauty of his ways, that he is perfect and and what he does is worthy of all praise. And I think maybe the most significant of things that we ought to take from this passage today is that there are many implications on our daily lives embedded here. As we know, all scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, and training in righteousness. So I want to ask you to take your Bibles and turn to Romans 11. And please stand with me. I'm going to read God's word. I'm going to read 25 to 32. And we don't stand just to do something different in the service. We really stand to call attention to the fact that this is the word of God we're reading. You think of all the words that you spoke this week. You know, all the things that went on in your life this week. All the things you hear. The word of God is different. The word of God is from God. And the Bible tells us it is powerful. And many of you can attest to that. God has changed your life by the word of God. using The spirit of God using the word of God in your life. So let me go ahead and read uh, verses 25 to 32. Lest you be wise in your own conceits, I want you to understand this mystery, brothers. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And in this way, all Israel will be saved. 
as it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion. He will banish ungodliness from Jacob, and this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. As regards the gospel, they are enemies of God for your sake. But as regards election, they are beloved for the sake of their forefathers. For the gifts and calling of God are irrevocable. Just as you were at one time disobedient to God, but now have received mercy because of their disobedience, so they too have now become disobedient in order that by the mercy shown to you, they also may now receive mercy. For God has consigned all to disobedience that he might have mercy on all. Let's pray. Lord, we just thank you for your, your word and thank you for your presence with us. And Lord, we want to be humble. We don't want to act like we're know-it-alls. We don't want to act like we've heard this before. Or we don't want to act like, well, this is too tough. We, don't, we want to pass it on by. Lord, we, just, we want to understand what you have for us today in your word, in this passage, and that we would ask that you, no matter what the condition of our heart right now is, that you would do whatever is necessary, that we would, would glorify you in our hearts, in our lives, in this church, and to the ends of the earth. That's our prayer, Lord, and we pray in Jesus' name, amen. So right off the bat, let me just say, uh, God always keeps his word, 100% integrity. Uh, he has not canceled his promises. He has not forsaken his people, Israel. And Israel is not permanently rejected. Because those are the kind of questions that Paul was bringing up here, in, in actually in chapters 9, 10, and 11, because people were asking those kind of questions. They were saying, well, look, there's all these you know, Gentiles getting saved, but barely any Jews getting saved comparatively that there are far more Gentiles coming to faith in Christ. And here you have Jesus Christ, the son of David, the Messiah of Israel, and they're, they're basically saying, no, we don't want him. And the majority of Israel is lost, and there's just a remnant. There's a scrap, there's a, a piece of Israel, but many are not believing. And so what we find out as we look in chapters 9, 10, and 11 of Romans is that God is working out a plan that he set in motion before the foundation of the world to save Jew and Gentile. And so chapter 9 talked about how God planned for it in, in election. He chose who would be saved. Chapter 10 speaks of when men and women and boys and girls reject Christ, what happens? Whose fault is it? And you find out it's our responsibility when we reject Christ. And then in chapter 11, it starts explaining in greater detail the blindness of those who don't believe that are from Israel, their rejection of Christ. And just to do a little review in chapter 11, first 10 verses talks about the present remnant, that there is a remnant of Israel, there's a, a scrap, there's a small piece that's believing. But that's to remind us that God keeps his promises. That, that, and Paul used himself as an example, right? He said, look, I'm an Israelite. I'm saved and I'm an Israelite. So I'm proof that God hasn't you know, completely thrown his people out. But it also told us something else. The flip side of that. If there's just a remnant, that means most are hard-hearted towards Christ. And so you have to acknowledge that truth. And what you find out is despite the Jews' rejection of Christ, God did not cast them off. He made promises to Israel that he is going to keep. 
And that should lead us to be humble. That should lead us to be bold even as we seek to evangelize. Because you, again, you have Paul who was very unlikely candidate to become a believer. I mean, just think of your own life. I mean, I look at my life, I'm like, I was a very uncan- unlikely candidate to become a believer. So don't write anyone off. And then take the encouragement that is here for us that we're not alone in this, but there are more. The remnant is not all there is. There's going to be more getting saved. And it's not just at the end of time, but even now, Jews can get saved. And we should have an expectation, really, of multiplied grace to many people. And, and as God is drawing the elect, as God is drawing those he has chosen, as anyone who will believe comes to Christ, we should have this expectation of God's multiplied grace. And then we should have empathy. I mean, we shouldn't be proud, we shouldn't be hard-hearted towards the Jews or anyone rejecting Christ. We should be empathetic and burdened for them. This is why Paul started out in chapters 9 and 10 and said, look, I am praying for their salvation. I am burdened for how lost they are. And we should have empathy for those who don't know Christ. This room is going to be filled with a lot of kids and all their parents can be dropping them off this week, some of whom are saved and some of them who are not. And we pray for those who are saved to be sanctified, grow in their faith, but we pray that those who aren't saved, God would open their hearts to the gospel and that they would come to know Christ. This is our prayer. And and you should have empathy for those who don't know Christ. Then you move on in chapter 11. In chapter 11, verses 11 through 32, what you see is that there will be a future restoration for Israel. And last time, a couple weeks ago, we saw... Verses 11 through 24, why God saves Gentiles. You know, it's not because we were so great. We were always, we were lost and we were without God, without hope. But it says that he saves Gentiles to make the Israelites envious of their salvation and of their transformed lives. Now, if you and I get envious, that's usually sinful, okay? That's usually wrong envy, But the kind of envy that Israel will have is good envy. That God saves Gentiles so that Israelites will have good envy towards them and say, wow, they got their life changed by Jesus. And then they see us humbly living in awe of God and they see us giving them the gospel. So God is provoking Israel to good envy, generating humility in Gentiles, and at the same time displaying kindness towards those he saves and and severity towards those who are not saved. Because those who are saved are receiving the mercy of God. Those who are not saved are under the judgment of God. And they're under the just wrath of God. And so this is what we saw a couple weeks ago. And now we come up to verses 25 to 32. So that catches us up a bit. And it gives, this gives us an insight into Israel's future restoration. This passage how God's irrevocable promise to Israel should humble us to the core and should cause us to to seriously be in awe of God and and be merciful as we serve his purposes. That we wouldn't be judgmental towards those who are unsaved, but that we would be merciful towards the body of Christ and towards those outside. This passage really shows us two characteristics of God's uh, irrevocable promise. Two characteristics, and I'll point out the first. It's in verses 25 to 29, and it's this. God's irrevocable promise is mysterious, okay? It's mysterious. 
So we're going to look at the mystery of God here. So start at verse 25. But notice how he begins. Notice that he doesn't just jump right into, hey, let me tell you what the mystery is. He says this, he goes, lest you be wise in your own sight. He starts by saying, you need to be humble. Don't be wise in your own estimation. Don't become proud. Don't be arrogant. Don't be conceited. The reason he's saying this, it's a very real possibility. Our nemesis is pride, arrogance. Gentile Christians would have been tempted then as they are now to actually think, well, we replaced the unbelieving Jews. We took their seat on the bus. We're in the body and they're not, and they're outside, they're not getting in. And it's very easy because of pride to misunderstand God's plan for Israel. It's easy to be proud, isn't it? It's easy to get puffed up. It's easy to think more highly of ourselves than we ought to think. In fact, as we get into the highly applicable and practical uh, final chapters in Romans, you get Romans 12, verse 3, and you get Romans 12, verse 16, and it's like, don't be proud. Don't be puffed up. And it's a common correction that we need to get. We see it really all through the Bible. Don't be pride, prideful. Be humble. It's this common correction because of the, of the common cancerous pride that continues to grow in our hearts. And, and when we think we've cut it out, then we start thinking we're humble and then we're proud, right? The moment you start thinking you're a bit humble, you're very proud. C.S. Lewis said, pride is anti-God. He said, unchastity, anger, greed, and drunkenness are mere flea bites in comparison to pride. Jonathan Edwards said, pride is the worst viper in the heart. It's the greatest disturber of the soul's peace. It's the greatest disturber of sweet communion with Christ. If you're struggling with pride today, maybe that's why you have no peace in your soul. Maybe that's why you're not experiencing sweet communion with Christ. You got a viper in your heart. And then pride is associated with a lack of knowledge, not understanding, not knowing. In fact, one person said this, by ignorance is pride increased, they most assume who know the least. It's true. By ignorance, pride is increased, they most assume who know the least. So Paul says, I don't want you to be proud and I don't want you to be unaware because being pride and, and not understanding go together. He says, I don't want you to be unaware of this mystery. You won't understand the mystery if you're pr- proud in your heart and you, you won't grasp it. And he's saying, I don't want you to be uninformed. I don't want you to be ignorant. I, I don't want you to not know. I want you to know. I I want you to get this info. And so he's going to give this info. It's on deck, okay? It's it's the info backing up his admonition. There's a mystery. And he's going to give the answer to the mystery. So it won't be a mystery anymore, but it'll still be mysterious. You know what I'm saying? You'll know the answer to the mystery, but it's still going to be like, wait, how's this really going to work out? This, This plan this purpose of God that was hidden in the past and was impossible for us to discover. That's what a mystery is, biblically speaking. Something hidden in the past and impossible for us to discover unless God reveals it. So Paul is backing up his exhortation to humility by revealing a mystery. The word mystery is used only twice in Romans 
right here and then in chapter 16, verse 25. But Paul uses it more than anybody else in the New Testament, this, this word mystery. He talks about how the mystery of prophecy is revealed by God, how the mystery of how the world and the history is going to unfold is revealed by God. And every time you come across a mystery in the Bible, you should be so thankful because what happens is you get to say, wow, I'm not God. Wow, God is God and I am not. Uh, it, it puts things in perspective. There are no mysteries to God. God is infinite. God, God is holy. We are sinful. We are finite. God says in Isaiah 55 verse 8, My thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are my ways your ways. The psalmist says in Psalm 92, verse 5, how great are your works, O Lord. Your thoughts are very deep. Like, I cannot dig down deep enough to understand your thoughts. Paul is revealing a mystery. In the past it was hidden. Now it's revealed. It was info unknown had not God graciously revealed it. And here's the mystery. Look at verse 25, the second part of verse 25. Put your eyes there. It says there is a partial hardening that has come upon Israel. Literally a blindness. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. There it is, plain and simple, there's your mystery. What's up with Israel? Here's your mystery, answered, revealed. There's a partial hardening on Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in, until all the Gentiles that are gonna get saved, get saved. Many in Israel will believe the gospel and be saved once it's been fully proclaimed to the Gentiles and God has shut the door on that. This is God's plan, a partial hardening. It's a passing hardening, but it was purposeful. And the purposeful is for the glory of God. Look at verse 36. For from him and through him and to him are all things. This is, by the way, summing up all of chapters 1 through 11. Everything that's been provided in Christ is from God and through him and, 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 and to him. It's for him. Look at the last line. To him be glory forever. Amen. So be it. This is the way it is. This is the truth. This is why. This is why everything else has been spoken. This is the reason for everything. Your salvation is not the point. The glory of God is the point. The purpose of God in saving Jew and Gentile is his glory. From chapter 1 onward, through the whole Bible, the golden gospel thread running through the entire Bible, we're talking about the ultimate purpose of God. It is the glory of God. Salvation is a means to his glory. What we find out is that if Israel did not continue to reject the gospel, that God will graft them back into the olive tree of his people. In fact, look at verse 24. Just one verse before this passage. It says this, to the Gentiles, if you were cut from what is by nature a wild olive tree and grafted contrary to nature, into a cultivated olive tree, how much more will these, the natural branches, be grafted back into their own olive tree? 
a pile of dead branches on the ground? How can this be? God can make the dead to live. Remember the valley of the dry bones? God can take the dead branches, graft them back in, and make them live. There is a partial hardening. Verse 26 tells us, in this way, literally, so therefore all Israel will be saved. As it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion. He will banish ungodliness from Jacob. It's quoting Isaiah 59. The mystery being revealed is the order of events before the deliverer comes from Zion. This is simple. This is about Jesus Christ, the deliverer, who keeps the unilateral covenant of God to save a people for himself. This is acknowledging that we can't keep covenant with God, but Jesus, the deliverer, keeps the unilateral covenant. It's telling us that the salvation of Israel will happen in close connection to the time that Jesus, the son of David, Israel's Messiah, will come again and deliver them from the wrath of God and give them peace. Just like every believer is enjoying now. You are delivered from the wrath of God and you're enjoying the peace of God granted to you by our Lord Jesus Christ, through our Lord Jesus Christ, for our Lord Jesus Christ and for his glory. The deliverer will come. This is about Christ's second coming. And by the way, in Hebrew, in the Hebrew language, in Isaiah 59, 20, it says, he will come to Zion. In the Greek translation of the Old Testament, the Septuagint, uh, Isaiah 59, 20 says, he will come for the sake of Zion. Here in Romans, it says he will come from Zion, most likely emphasizing Jesus' Jewishness. He's David's offspring, Romans 1.3. He is from Israel, Romans 9.5. I was talking to a Jewish friend of mine recently, and he said to me, how many Christians do you think know that Jesus is Jewish? And I'm like, all the Christians I know know that Jesus is Jewish. He's like, really? I didn't realize Isaiah 59, in the context, is an indictment against Israel for her sins against God that made a separation between her and God. And, and this is why, you know, you read in the Psalms, and it, it basically, it, there's the cry for deliverance. Psalm 14, verse 7. Psalm 53, verse 6, the exact same verse. Oh, that salvation would come out of Zion. Both verses say the same thing. Oh, that salvation would come out of Zion and, and in the person of Jesus Christ, as promised, salvation did in his first coming. And he came to die for sin, die in the place of lost sinners and be buried and rise on the third day. And then he was ascended to the Father and he's coming back. And this is speaking of when he comes again for his people. Israel is presently under the judgment described Earlier in this chapter, as Deuteronomy 29 and Isaiah 29 were being quoted, and how God was going to, was going to circumcise the hearts of his people, that's, that's the equivalent of saying all Israel will be saved. But it was showing us that up until the very day that it was written, and even to this day, the greatest work of God in taking the blindness away from Israel hasn't happened yet. It's yet future. When, when God circumcised their hearts, Deuteronomy 30, verse 6, all Israel would be saved. But they are now blind to the truth. 
There's a judgment against the prophets, judgment against the blindness of, of the Jews, and it's looking to the day when the Jews would be forgiven, when they would receive their Messiah, when they would be given understanding and, and, and receive the gospel. That will be a day that all who, who hear of it will rejoice. Most important part about verse 26 is the word all and understanding that correctly so that, again, we don't go off the reservation and come up with weird teachings about Israel. It says all Israel will be saved. Who in Israel will be saved? This is talking about the elect in Israel who by the gracious purpose of God were chosen before the foundation of the world for salvation because there's one salvation program. There is not two and, and there's one way to be saved. Everyone who's ever saved is saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in the Redeemer alone. Uh, those Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob were looking forward to the Redeemer. We look back and say the Redeemer came and he's coming again. The mystery has been revealed. God's free choice will include the vast majority of Israel near the end. And we don't know how many that is. When it says all, that, that really is in, in, uh, speaking of the majority of Israel. We don't know. We don't know the timing. We don't know the day. But they will be saved by the same faith in Christ that the remnant in Israel is now exercising. And that Gentiles are now exercising. What we need to be clear about is that not all Jews of all time will get saved. God is not going back and retroactively saving people, retroactively grandfathering people into the kingdom. It is appointed unto man once to die and then the judgment. So you need to understand what God is doing with Israel. There are many people, Jew and Gentile alike, who have rejected Christ that will be in hell or already are there. But before Christ returns, many Jews at that time will believe in Christ. And this requires us literally to, to take careful, continual carefulness in keeping to look at our compass, the word of God. And remember this, it, it teaches universal sin. It doesn't teach universal salvation. In fact, in chapter 9, verse 6, it says, not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. In, in verse 11, God's purpose of election. Some are chosen, some are not. Verse 15, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. Verse 18, I, he has mercy on whomever he wills, he hardens whomever he wills. But the present remnant reminds us that God keeps his promises. He's keeping his promise to Israel. He's not gonna break his promise to Israel. But Romans 11 does not promise salvation to all Israel throughout history but to all Israel at the end of history. The majority of Jews will have been hardened through history. The majority of Jews will be saved at the end, those who are alive at that time. Election is not by pedigree. It's not by your genealogy. It's not by your background. Your background doesn't cement salvation for you. God gives salvation to his chosen ones by his sovereign will. If your heart is open to the gospel, it's because God opened your heart to the gospel. Praise God for that. Verse 27, there's another quote, and it says this, this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. Speaking of the covenant of God, the unilateral covenant of God that he makes, it takes us back to Genesis chapter 15, when God made a unilateral covenant with Abraham and his descendants, and it, there's the smoking fire pot, and there's the flaming torch, and God made the pathway through the animals that he 
cut in half and Abraham is walking through and God is making the covenant unilaterally. He says, I'm going to do this. Basically, Paul's taking us back and saying, this was being promised all along, folks. And God would take away the sin of his chosen ones. And so the conversion of of a majority of Jews will happen in the future. Many Gentiles now, the present reality of coming to know Christ. A few weeks ago, I even even asked for a show of hands. Who in here is a a Christian Jew? And, And the majority are Gentiles. And, and we are experiencing the present reality of being saved from the wrath of God on the way to heaven. God persevering us. God sanctifying us. And there's a smaller amount of Jews that are experiencing that. But there's a promised future event for the majority of the Jews that are alive during that time. And God promised it. So when you read in Romans 4, quoting Psalm 32, blessed are they whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. If you're a Christian, aren't you glad that your sins are forgiven? If God would keep a record of our sins, who could stand? Aren't you glad that your sins are covered? Blessed, they're covered by the blood of Christ. Blessed is the man whose sin the Lord will never count against him. If you're a Christian today, aren't you glad that God is not counting your sins against you? Aren't you glad that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus? Move on to verse 28. It says something startling. It says, as regards the gospel, they, the Jews, are enemies for your sake. Now, you should never view the Jews as your enemies. You should befriend them and share the gospel with them. And, and personally, I don't ask people, you know, what their nationality is or what their ethnicity is before sharing the gospel. You just share the gospel with everyone and leave the results to God, right? There are times you know that you're speaking to someone who's Jewish, and what it's telling us is this. For a believer, with regard to the gospel, they are enemies for your sake, meaning Unbelieving Israel is now God's enemy. Just like every unbelieving Gentile is. But here the context is, what's the deal with Israel, right? But their enemyhood has a saving purpose. One day it will yield the fulfillment of God's love and commitment to Israel. So there's this enmity from God to them right now. God's hostility towards them because they've rejected Christ. They're enemies for your sake. I was reading an article by a Jewish rabbi recently, and he was noting how many synagogues in America are closing one after another. And his main point was, the reason why they're they're closing is because Jews don't believe what those synagogues are teaching. And they don't know the word of God, and they don't believe it. And many of them are rank pagans and atheists, and and they're, they're unbelievers even in the Old Testament. They don't believe the Old Testament. And he was literally writing an article about what can we do about all the synagogues closing. Because people don't want to go and hear that because they don't believe that. As regards the gospel, they are enemies for your sake. But as regards election, they are beloved for the sake of their forefathers. Now I want you to look at something with me. I want you to go back in Romans to Romans 5 and just 
peruse the first 11 verses with me for a moment. Since we have been justified by faith, this is about believers, Jew and Gentile alike, being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him we have obtained access by faith into this grace in which, you stand, in which we stand, and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. More than that, we rejoice in our suffering. We know that suffering produces endurance. We hope does not put us to shame. God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. But look at verse 6. While we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. Verse 8, but God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Therein lies our hope. That God could be, could be hostile towards sinners at the same time he loved them. He demonstrated his own love toward us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. God loved sinners before their acceptance of the gospel while still his enemies. That's what verse 10 and verse 8 tell us. God's hostility towards unbelieving Israel is mixed with love for them. You should never hate them. You should never see them as your enemy. You should never judge them. You should seek to reach them for Christ. Because God is going to rescue the elect from wrath. By God's own choice, he promised their forefathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, that he would bless their descendants. And what we're reading here in verse 28, they are beloved for the sake of their forefathers because of election. We're hearing about the elect that only God knows who they are even before they know who they are. And of course, we don't know who they are. So he's talking about the elect before they come to faith. Isn't that awesome? Salvation promise based on faith in Christ. Everyone's saved the same way, by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, for the glory of God alone. And you get to verse 29. One of the most misunderstood and twisted verses in the Bible. Verse 29. For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. I have heard people say, my spiritual gift is mine forever, and I always have to do that because God's gifts are irrevocable. This verse is not about spiritual gifts at all. This is about the gift of God, which is eternal life in Jesus Christ our Lord. And the calling is his call through the gospel for you to repent and believe in the gospel, believe in Jesus. So God's sovereign choice, again, is not based on your family ties, your genealogy, your moral virtue. We had none. His gifts and calling as pertains election, as pertains salvation, are irrevocable. We should be very glad. We should be very thankful. We should be very humble about this. God is not sorry afterwards for the choice he made. Think about all the choices you make in your life and you're like, well, that wasn't a good choice. Well, that one blew up on me. Well, I'll never make that choice again. God has no regrets. God's choices are without, literally, it's without regret. He will never take it back. He does not go back on his gifts of grace. So if you've been saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, you know that you are secure in Christ because you were chosen before the foundation of the world 
and God is reliable, and when he decides to act, he never goes back on his decision to save. And then, by the way, the next time you find yourself swimming in an ocean of God's mysteries, and you're like, I just can't figure it all out, let that cause you to be in awe of God who knows no mysteries. <laughs> Everything is open to him. Uh, his mystery should humble us and remind us that we are not God and that he is perfect. This is Job's example. In Job 42, he answers the Lord that at the end of Job, after everything had happened, here's what Job says to God. I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. I have uttered what I did not understand. Things too wonderful for me, which I did not know. I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. That should be the stance of our heart before God. And by the way, don't make the mystery more mysterious. It's been revealed. I know there's a lot of people when they come to doctrines in the Bible and they have this idea what it's already like or they heard some teaching somewhere and they said, I don't care if you read it to me plain from the Bible and simply explain it, I'm going to be locked into what I thought beforehand. That's sad. It is a simple, simple mystery. There's a partial hardening has come upon Israel until all the Gentiles that are going to get saved get saved. And that should put away Gentile pride for good. But it doesn't. So keep reading it. Uh, we, we are tempted to believe that we were chosen by God because we were superior somehow. Nothing could be further from the truth. God planned salvation history that he would receive maximum glory, that everyone who is saved would be humbled. If you're not humbled, you might not be saved. God will humble you if you're saved. Don't be wise in your own eyes. Don't, don't think you're better. The gospel frees us from pride. Don't get retrapped by pride. Humility is demanded. The yield to the gospel, let it humble you. Fight pride with the gospel. God's irrevocable promise is mysterious. Israel's partial hardening, their gospel enemyhood, election, it's a mystery. But God has revealed that he is going to do something in the future upon which everyone will rejoice. He's explained it. And it's pure mercy. It really is. It's pure mercy. That's the second characteristic of his promise. You see it in verses 30 to 32. It is pure mercy. God's irrevocable promise here's the second point his irrevocable promise is merciful he holds back the wrath that we deserve can, can you grasp it can you grasp it just a little bit if you're a believer today that god held back the wrath that you deserve and put it all on christ at the cross in your place. And look at what it says in verse 30. As you Gentiles, speaking of the Gentiles, were at one time disobedient to God, Gentile believers, as you Gentile believers were at one time disobedient to God but now have received mercy because of their uh, elect Gentiles, elect Jews' disobedience. So they, verse 31, the elect Jews have been disobedient so that by the mercy shown to you, they, the elect Jews, might receive mercy. Because remember, we're not talking about a false doctrine of universal salvation. 
Bible's very clear that not everyone gets saved. And then you get to verse 32. And this verse is probably the most important verse in Romans in all of, of chapters 1 through 11. Because it sums up the whole sweep of the argument from chapter 1 onward. The flow of thought is now summarized in one verse, verse 32. This summarizes all of chapters 1 through 11 right here. For God has consigned all, all elect Jews and Gentiles, to disobedience, that he might have mercy on all, all elect Jews and Gentiles. And you'll notice in these several verses, disobedience is listed four times, mercy is listed four times, mercy triumphs over judgment, and it says that God has consigned consigned all in disobedience, literally enclosed within. It's a military term, and it's the idea of shutting up the city. It's the idea of surrounding and besieging the enemy town with no escape. There is no escape. Galatians says that the scriptures have imprisoned everything under sin. Romans 3 speaks of, has a string of biblical quotations of, of the disobedience of every human being. And so this is being spoken in a metaphorical, legal sense, really. The charge is inescapable, all under disobedience. But God did it, get this, for a, a joyful purpose, to show mercy. That he might have mercy on all the elect, all kinds of folks, whether elect Jew or Gentile, receive mercy. God it was free. We see it in chapter 9. God is God. He can give mercy to whomever he w- wants to. And it is surprising when you receive it. You expect death and you get life. You expect wrath and you get acceptance and joy. Anyone who receives the mercy of God in Christ, like any believer, is surprised by it. You should never think, well, God finally figured out how good I am. So he surprisingly shows mercy to the Gentiles. Flip side is true too. He's going to surprisingly show mercy to the, to the Jews. You trace the storyline all the way through. The salvation of Israel will come after they plunge deep in sin and experience judgment. And the deliverer, Jesus Christ, at his second coming will come. And the genius of the new covenant is this. He's going to overcome their hardness of heart by giving them a new heart. He's going to remove the sin of the people, grant them a heart to know him, going to give them mercy. If, if you are one today that you're like, well, I'm under the wrath of God, I, I have not received God's mercy because I don't believe in Jesus, I would beg you to come to know Christ today, to believe in the Lord Jesus and be saved, to know that Jesus died in your place on the cross and was buried and rose from the dead the third day and ascended to the Father and promised to return with blessing for those who believe and judgment for those who do not. Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. Now a word of warning to all believers. This passage is not a tutorial on the history and the future of Israel. And if you go out today thinking, well I, heard, I found out what's going to happen with Israel, and it just I'm going to leave it at that, and now I know more, you've missed the point. This is an exhortation from God aimed at the heart of every Gentile believer so that they, we would be humble 
and that we would pray and that we would seek to reach Israel and everyone else with the gospel. God's mercy humbles us. And I think that some people just suffer from, you know, empathy deficit disorder. Uh, My result, I want to be more merciful, more empathetic towards the lost, more humble towards all. Christians can debate till they're blue in the face all the plans God has for the physical descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And if they do not pray, and if you and I do not pray for the salvation of Israel, we are wrong. What should we pray? The Westminster Confession gives us what we should pray. That the kingdom of sin and Satan would be destroyed. That the gospel would be propagated throughout the world. That the Jews would be called. That the fullness of the Gentiles would be brought in. That Christ would rule in our hearts here. And that we would reign with him forever. That we would thank him for mercy. That put a note on your refrigerator every day. Note to self, preach the gospel to my own heart. Remember how sinful I am. Remember Christ's sacrifice. Remember that he, he satisfied the law. He appeased the wrath. He credited righteousness to me. He bestowed forgiveness upon me. He extended mercy to me. He secured my soul forever. All that should do is make us humble. We live in a time where promises are are broken all the time. Airtight. Seemingly airtight agreements shattered. Contracts canceled. You drill down to the sweet center of this passage and you got the gospel glory running throughout. The mystery and the mercy of God's salvation plan for Israel and for Gentiles. God's goodness and keeping covenant with his people. Delivering from sin and death. The beauty of of God's mysterious and merciful ways. And next week, we're gonna look at Christ's immeasurable riches. It doesn't get better than this. Let's pray together. Let's pray. Lord, we just thank you that you're revealing your glory through mercy and love. Thank you that you take away our sins for your name's sake, for your glory. Thank you that your mystery humbles us and even, even silences us, even astounds us. And that your mercy humbles us and surprises us. And, and your mercy abounds to us. And, and we're just in awe, Lord, of the lengths that you went to show your mercy. We praise you. Humble us to the core, Lord, that we would mercifully serve your purposes. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening. For more information about grace, please visit our website at graceorange.org.